little one Sunday break between a, uh, a long stretch between January and Easter, so I'm glad to be with you today. We're continuing on, obviously, in our Jacob series, the study of Jacob wrestling with God. So, Now, you know, in movies sometimes, when you're studying someone's life, um, they have to skip ahead. You know, they have to kind of skip ahead to figure that out. So today we're skipping ahead a little bit. Because Jacob, the story of Jacob in Genesis is a long story. And so today we're moving ahead. So I want to kind of catch you up where we are going to be today in Genesis 32. So Jacob has been working for Laban, who's his father-in-law, for 20 years. Now he's married to Leah and to Rachel, uh, Laban's daughters, obviously. He worked for seven years to marry Rachel, but then he was tricked into marrying Leah, if you remember that from last week. Then he married Rachel and worked for another seven years for her. So that's 14 years. Then we skip ahead six more years. So he's been working for his father-in-law for 20 years. And near the end of the 20 years, uh, Jacob is, and we know that he, he can be uh, tricky and shrewd. And here we see him right before this story, that he's a shrewd businessman. And he has an agreement with Laban. He makes an agreement with Laban to divide the herds. So he, he's got all these herds, these herds of uh, goats and sheep and camels and cows, it says. And he makes a plan to, uh, to divide the herds with Laban. But he does it in such a way that he breeds and keeps the strongest and best animals. And then uh, uh, Laban's sons see what's going on, and they are accusing him basically of, of taking, you know, the best. And they say he's becoming, at one point they say he's becoming exceedingly rich and they're jealous of him. So Jacob, being Jacob, hears about all this. He, he makes a plan and gathers all his family, all the herds, and he sneaks away and runs from Laban. Laban catches him out in the wilderness and they have an agreement to let uh, Jacob go back to his, his land, to where he was born. Uh, and Laban blesses him. So that's where we are now. We're out in the wilderness and Jacob is getting ready to go home, but he knows he's going to have to confront and meet Esau. So that's where we pick up the story in Genesis 32. So this is God's word. Here we go. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the place Mahinam. Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them. Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have lived with Laban as an alien and stayed until now, and I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female slaves, and I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and camels into two companies, thinking, if Esau comes to the one company and destroys it, then the company that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, and I will do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I am afraid of him. He may come and kill us all, the mothers with the children. Yet you have said, 
I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted because of their number. So he spent that night there, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milch or female camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 uh, male donkeys. Then he delivered into the hands of his servants every drove by itself, and he said to the servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove, and he instructed the foremost when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom, do you be, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob, they are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who follow the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you meet him, and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he, him, he himself spent that night in the camp. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you this morning, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Well, there's a lot there in this passage. It's, uh, it's not just what we, you know, we missed in the, past, uh, in the past 20 years, you know, as he's, he's built up these flocks and herds, and now he's escaped Laban, and he's going back home. There's some other things going on as well. He's on the move with all these people, and they're probably out in this, uh, probably a great wilderness, kind of between east, east of uh, Israel, what is now Israel, and he's going home, and he's, he's out camping. So it's probably an enormous camp with all these people, all his family. He's had 11 sons uh, with, different, with these different wives over this time, and, and, and lots of children and servants and animals, this huge camp that's out in the wilderness. Then it says Jacob sees angels and recognizes them, and he says he calls the place Mahinam, meaning two camps. And I think he's meaning here, he talks about he has two companies of people because he's so large. But I think he's meaning that it's a, his camp, uh, where he's camping, and God's camp. In a sense, we see that God is with him. Why does God need to show that he is uh, with Jacob? Because Jacob, we see, is getting ready to meet Esau. In fact, it says he sends messengers ahead to tell Esau he's coming. And he's afraid of him because the last time he talked to Esau 20 years ago, Esau said he was going to kill him. All right? And so... Esau seems like the kind of guy that might do it, and Jacob's walking into this storm here. And, and so I think Jacob's probably shaking in his camel hair boots. No, he probably didn't have camel hair boots, but it sounds kind of fun. He's shaking in his boots, right? So he's going to do two things here. He's going to plan and pray. He's going to pray and plan. And his plan is to be cautious, to send ahead the flocks of the sheep and the herds of the goats and the camels. And he's going to stay back with the second group because he's thinking, you know, at least if I, if I send out this first group, perhaps a half of my family and, and myself, maybe we can escape if Esau attacks. In verse 7, in fact, it says, Jacob, it's a quote, is greatly afraid and distressed. He's not just a little worried, a little bit concerned. He is very afraid. 
he is distressed. And I think fear is a big deal. We, we know that fear is a big deal. When we look in the Bible, uh, maybe the most repeated promise in the Bible is do not fear, do not be afraid. Throughout Scripture, uh, to many key leaders in the Bible, they are told again and again, do not fear, do not be afraid. So I think fear is a big deal, and it's something we're going to talk about this morning. Well, here's a couple of uh, fun, maybe, examples of fear. The first one is the elephant afraid of the mouse. So, um, you know, that's, that's a real fear. Actually, you know, I did a little research on that this week. We think this is a myth. Uh, some people in ancient times thought that um, a mouse could run up an elephant's trunk. Most people think that, that that wouldn't happen. They think maybe elephants might get surprised by a mouse scurrying around because it's so small, much as if you would be surprised and maybe shocked if a mouse is running around your kitchen, right? All right. Well, here's some real fear. Here's uh, Scooby-Doo and Shaggy. Uh, I kind of like Shaggy. Shaggy's kind of cool, but he's scared a lot. Scooby-Doo's scared. And who wouldn't be scared by that house in the background, you know? So if you grew up watching Scooby-Doo, uh, or if your kids maybe watch it now, it's a lot of fun. But fear can be good. And I think something that Scooby-Doo and Shaggy teach us is that sometimes fear is good because when they, when they have fear, they run from the monsters. They run from the scary people. So fear can sometimes be good, something we can learn from Scooby-Doo uh, and Shaggy. Now, I thought about putting up a picture, and I looked at this uh, this week, of something that I'm afraid of, which is needles and getting injections, all right? And I thought about that, and so I looked up some pictures of that, and then my palms started sweating, and I started thinking about getting a shot, and so I quickly uh, clicked off that page and decided not to put that on the screen. Okay, so... Just a little uh, thing there. But I did have one more. Is Home Alone. Here's Home Alone. This is Kevin. You know, we, we probably know Home Alone. I read this week, it, I think it's the highest grossing Christmas movie of all time. Now, at this point, he looks scared. Now, there's another point where he, there's a famous part in the movie where he puts his hands on his cheeks uh, because he's, he's shaved and he puts aftershave on. It burns. But Kevin has a good reason to be afraid, too, because there's crooks, there's burglars that come to his house. And so I think what we can learn from Kevin is that he does two things. He plans. He makes these elaborate plans uh, to, uh, to distract and to stop the burglars. But also near the end is he asks for help. And he goes to a church. It's Christmas time. And the old man neighbor ends up helping him uh, in the end. So we can learn from Kevin too. So we can both plan and ask for help. We can plan and pray. We can pray and plan, and that's what Jacob does here. He does both planning and praying. So Jacob sends messengers ahead to tell Esau that he's coming. He finds out that Esau tells him, or his messengers come back, and they say, well, Esau is coming. He's coming to meet you out in the wilderness, but he's coming with 400 men. Now, if we read in First and Second Samuel, it says that 400 men is the size of a raiding party. So basically, Esau's coming with an army to meet his brother. This is not good news. He's like, okay, it's not just bad enough that my brother wants to kill me. Now he's coming to meet me with basically an entire army of the Old Testament. And so Jacob is afraid, but he plans and he prays. He plans by dividing the people, his servants, and his flocks, all the donkeys, sheep, and goats. In fact, it gets real specific here in Genesis. He says he's going to have this group go ahead of him. And he's going to say, here is a gift for you. He's going to go with his servants. He says, 220 uh, goats. Here's another gift for you. It will be 220 sheep, and then another gift, camels, and then another gift, cows, and then donkeys. And he's even telling them, set some space in between you as you go, so he'll receive those one at a time. He's probably hoping, hoping that uh, Esau 
will be softened up a little bit. Now, why is Jacob doing this? It could be he's doing it out of guilt because he deceived his brother out of his birthright and his blessing. He could be trying to make reconciliation for that. But I think his main motivator here, again, is fear. But at least he's doing something about it. He's acting on it. So he has his plan, and then he prays. And we, too, we can plan and pray. Now, now we have heard, um, oftentimes, with faced with a crisis, we can react with fight or flight, fight or flight. But this is not really an immediate crisis. And as I was studying this and looking at this this week, it's not an immediate crisis where he has to fight or flight right in the moment. And he can't really fight because Esau's coming with 400 men and he could wipe, wipe Jacob out if, uh, if he wanted to. And he can't really flee because here he is probably literally with thousands of animals, maybe hundreds of people, it's too many people to run. So I think when faced with fear, we can do two things. We can fix or freeze. And yes, I came up with that this week. We can fix or freeze, not fight or flight. So I think fix means I can do it all myself. I can do it all myself. I don't need God's help. I've got this. I got this problem. Maybe I have some fear. Maybe I have a, an issue I'm dealing with. Um, I can fix this. I can take care of it. And yet, oftentimes, in difficult situations, we realize we can't fix it. Um, And we're at our healthiest best, uh, especially, I think, when facing fear in big situations, as Jacob is facing here, we realize, I can't fix this on my own, on my own. We need help. We need to ask for help. Or we can freeze. We can fix or freeze. We can freeze and do nothing. We can say, oh, well, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. There's nothing I can do about this. We can also freeze and pray. And what I mean by that is to just say, I'm in this bad situation. I'm in this fearful situation. Something bad is happening to me. I'm just going to pray about it, and then I'm going to kind of throw up my hands. I've given it to God. That's all I can do. And yet many times through our prayer, God will give us an action. God may give us a word or a sense of here's something that you can do about that. Or maybe there's something logical that we can do to face a certain situation, something to do about it. We ask for God's help. We ask for God's guidance. We ask for God's discernment in what to do, how to face our fears. And then God oftentimes calls us to act as well. So we don't need to fix or freeze. Instead, we need to plan and pray. Now, Jacob does pray. In fact, the verses 9 through 12 even though it's not a real long prayer, it's the longest uh, prayer that's recorded in the long book of Genesis. So I think it's important. Uh, it's, a, it's the longest prayer in the book of Genesis. So his prayer is a good example for us. And in his prayer, Walter Brueggemann, uh, a scholar, a theologian, says there are four parts to this prayer, four parts to this prayer. First, Jacob addresses God in terms of generations. He says, he's God of my, fa- God of my uh, father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, and he has reverence uh, when he prays for God. He recognizes and acknowledges who God is. So in a sense, he's praising God. He's recognizing who God is, that God has been with him, been with his father and his grandfather, um, and and affirming that. And then second, he affirms God's goodness. Uh, God had promised him, go back to the country of your relatives and I will make you prosper. 
And he says here, he said, I had only my staff before I came here. Now I have two groups or two companies, two huge groups of people, of family, of sons, of livestock. And he even says that he's unworthy of God's goodness and faithfulness. So what Jacob does is he affirms who God is. He's God of his fathers. In a sense, he's praising God. And he's thanking God and realizing that he's humble before God. So he's thanking God for his provision for his life. He is grateful for God's blessing. And I think these two parts, the first two parts of Jacob's prayer, are good for us to remember as well as we pray. And I I think I've said it before here, but we can begin our prayers oftentimes by praising God for who he is and thanking God for what he's done. We praise God for who he is. We thank God for what he's done. We could do this by saying things like, God, you are awesome, you are holy, you are good and loving. And God, I thank you for how you have provided for me and all the good gifts you have given to me. And that puts us, I think, in a right state of mind as we pray to praise God for who he is and thank God for what he has done. So we do that. Jacob does that. Then third, Jacob asks. He requests. And and it's okay to ask God for things that you need. He's really honest with God. He's humble and he is in need. In fact, he's desperate. He even tells God again in his prayer that he's afraid. He is very afraid. And he says, save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau. And he also prays, he says, the mothers with their children, so his wives and his children. And he prays really out of desperation. Again, save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau. And so this is a good part of prayer. We can pray sometimes out of desperation. We need to be bold in our prayers, asking God for what we need when we are in need. And don't hold back on that. Uh, Don't try to always fix it. Ask God for help. Ask God for what you need. And then fourth, Jacob basically says, you promised. He says, you promised. He reminds God of his promise. And he reminds God that God said that he would make him prosper. He says that his descendants would be like the sands of the sea. But now he's faced with the, the possibility of his own death. And basically, he says, God, you promised me. You promised you'd be with me. You'd make me prosper. And I'm reminding you of your promises. Okay, God, I know you told me this. And I'm asking you, will you please follow through? Don't let me die out here in the desert and all these people with me. God, I'm reminding you of what you said, and I'm counting on you for that. And I think it's a good prayer It's one we can learn from. And I think it's also important here in the Scripture to see that before the prayer, Jacob was planning, and then after the prayer, Jacob's still planning then to send out um, the herds and the different groups and to send them out uh, in front of him to send the gifts ahead. But Jacob's prayer, it's a real prayer. It's pretty raw. It's passionate, and it's bold. I think that's a good reminder for us today especially when we're in times that are difficult, especially when we are in fear and we face fear in our own lives. I know I do. But Walter Brueggemann says that the church, uh, that church prayer today is often too soft or too accommodating. And he says by being too soft or being too accommodating, by just praying very rote or routine prayers, it makes God, uh, it makes in our own minds, God not seem to be very powerful. We're just going through the motions of prayer. And he says we need more daring prayer. We need bold, bold prayer, daring prayer, as Jacob does here. 
Rabbi Abraham Heschel said this about prayer. To pray is to bring God back into the world, to expand God's presence. I like that. To pray is to bring God back into the world, to expand God's presence. And if you think about the way Jacob prays, he's asking, he's begging of God, God save me. He wants God to come back into the world to act, and he wants God um, to help him. And he asks boldly and daring, and he says, you promised that you would take care of me, and now I'm, I'm calling you out, God. I want you to help me. So we too can pray with passion, some daring to bring God back into our world. And so you may wonder, Scott, well, do you ever pray like this? I will tell you, sometimes I'm pretty, I don't have real high highs and high lows uh, in my life, and I don't always pray like this. But one time in my situation uh, where I had some fear and some doubts in my life, I certainly asked for prayer. I asked for help uh, in a certain situation. Many years ago, I was a 25-year-old young man. I didn't have gray hair then. I had black hair. And I was going to seminary. I was very excited about it. My friend uh, Rick Howard agreed with me to drive from Texas, where I was from, Dallas, Texas, all the way to Pasadena, California, in my old Cutlass. The car made it, just barely, uh, all the way to Pasadena. And so we went sightseeing a little bit. And then like a day later, I uh, took Rick to the airport, and he flew back from Los Angeles to Dallas because he had to go back to work. We were both about 25, as I said at the time. And then I realized... I didn't, know, I didn't know a single person in the state of California where I had just moved to. And so I, I knew this already. But once I put my friend Rick back on the airplane, it became very real. Now, I found a small apartment, and I was beginning seminary classes, which I loved. I enjoyed the classes. Uh, and things looked good on the outside, but on the inside, I was struggling pretty quickly. Uh, I was living in this little, tiny, expensive California apartment on my own. I didn't know anyone. I was trying to make friends, but it's a graduate school. Everybody's kind of in the same boat. It was hard to do. So I would go to class. I'd come home to this empty apartment or maybe go to the library where everyone's quiet. Not many people are talking. And I became lonely pretty quick and became homesick. And even though I was an adult, I was a man, I could handle this, I started to doubt. And I think some of the loneliness and some of just the literally being alone got to me. And so I started to doubt. So maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe this was all a big mistake. Maybe God wasn't really telling me that I'm supposed to be a pastor. Maybe I should never have moved to California. You know, it would have been safer. It would have been easier to stay home and do the work that I was doing in Dallas before I quit my job. Why did I do that anyway? Maybe I should never have come here. And started having a lot of fear, a lot of doubt. And I wasn't sharing it with anybody. I wasn't asking for help until one day I got desperate enough. And I had met this other young man who was kind of in the same boat. He didn't know a lot of people. He maybe knew one person there, and he lived in the same apartment complex. And so I called Daryl, and I asked Daryl to come over, and I just kind of spilled my soul, and, and, I, and I thought this was risky. He could think I'm crazy, you know, for doing this. But I thought maybe he's, the, he's in the same boat as I am. Maybe he's having some of the same feelings that I am. And so I asked Daryl to pray, and I remember still this uh, very vividly. He sat on this old couch I had. And Daryl put his hand on my shoulder, and we began to pray. Mostly he prayed. And he prayed for me. And it was kind of a desperate prayer, really, for both of us, that we would feel welcome there, that, that we would feel God's presence, um, that God would help us, and that God would help us to, to teach us and go forward in, in, in seminary. Just by sharing that and by us praying together, and again, Daryl doing most of the praying, um, I felt like a weight was lifted from my shoulder. And what I felt like I had been going downward, I started to go upward. And I felt like I actually had a friend, someone I knew, someone I could trust, and someone that we could pray together. 
and ask with boldness for God's help. Now, we also planned, and really, in the sense, we, we continued the plan. We had made the move. We had both made the move from far away, him from far away, me from far away, to come to seminary. So we went to our classes. We did our work. We kind of expanded our friendships with other guys, and it turned out well. And, uh, and so we planned and we prayed. We prayed and we planned. But really, out of desperation and out of some fear and doubt, I had to ask for help because I knew I could not fix it on my own. Well, I know that fear is real, and not only for me, but for, I would say, probably for all of us. As, as common as it is in Scripture, again, where God says, do not fear, do not be afraid. So I asked some friends via email this week, what are some of your fears, and what do you do about your fear? What can you do with God about your fear? Here are some uh, responses I got from uh, email this week about what are some of our fears. Two people just wrote the word failure, fear of failure. One person wrote, failing those I love. Another friend wrote, fear of not being loved, fear of not being loved, fear of the death of one of my children. And then this one, kind of a long one. I would say my biggest fear is not being good enough, not being a good enough parent, not being a good enough husband or wife, not being a good enough friend, not being a good enough employee, not being a good enough Christian, always striving to do what's right and do my best, but fearing it's not good enough. I tell you, I could really resonate with that one. I, I know that's something that, that I struggle with as well. I see the imperfections in myself. Maybe like some of you, I can be my own worst critic. And sometimes I fear maybe I'm just not good enough. And in those times, we need to go back to God again in our fear or our doubts and ask for his help with some daring and with some boldness and asking God, help me through this, but then also to plan, to pray and to plan. What can I do about this? How can I ask for help? What can I do with these concerns? Well, maybe one that's not so serious is, uh, as I have a fear now, is about my kids driving. So it's something I can't control. Oftentimes we fear things we can't control. Now, I can plan, and Claire, now we have four teenagers, which is uh, fearful in and of itself, right? Okay. My daughter's actually turning 18 today. Today's her 18th birthday. All right, that's kind of fun. But uh, we have two of them driving, two of them learning to drive. Now, we can plan. All four of them have been to driver's education. They've had five or six sessions with a driver's education instructor. We, Claire and I have had them out driving, and you're kind of white-knuckling it, you know, holding onto the seat, making sure everybody's got their seatbelts on, right? And so we plan. We plan. We act. And yet we pray especially when we send them out, when my son drives two hours off to college, and I wonder about that, and you send them off driving on the interstate on 465 for the first time or the first few times, and you pray, and if you've had kids or grandkids out for driving for the first time, when it snows for the first time and they drive in the, in the snow or the ice, so you plan and you pray. And I think it's a good uh, uh, recipe that Jacob gives us for how to deal with our fears our concerns, our doubts. One theologian said about Jacob, because of his shrewdness, because of his shrewdness, Jacob can plan. Jacob's a good planner. Because of his vulnerability, Jacob must pray. Because of his shrewdness, Jacob can plan. Because of his vulnerability, Jacob must pray. So um, I pray today for all kinds of things. I pray that God protects my children. I pray for you at church. 
I pray especially when I have doubts and fears and concerns. So what are we to do with those kind of fears? How are we to pray? And the New Testament says, cast your cares on the Lord. I, think, I really like that word. It's not so much like a, a fishing cast. It's throwing. Throw your cares upon the Lord. You know, beg of God, ask of God, be daring and bold with your prayers. Cast your cares on the Lord. First John says, perfect love drives out or casts out, in another translation, perfect love casts out fear. This passage is about being in relationship with God. It's an ongoing relationship. It's something we cultivate. We realize that God loves us. He loves us first, and so we love him back in return, that his love is perfect And in relationship with God, God's perfect love can cast out fear. Now, Jacob was both afraid and trusting in God. Now, you you might think it has to be one or the other, but I think Jacob shows it can be both. So as humans, we know that sometimes we, we, we trust God, we believe in God, we have faith in God. I know that's true in my life. And yet, at times, in various situations, I will still have doubts and fears. There's a man in the New Testament that I think recognizes this, and so I think this is a great way to to think about this today. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus is asked to heal a boy by his father. The boy is very sick. He's demon-possessed, and the father's probably afraid for even his son's life. He's worried, and he's fearful, and he asks for help. So he has planned. He's asking. He's going around looking for help for someone who can help his son. And then he prays. He doesn't literally, literally pray, but he's in the presence of Jesus, and he's heard who Jesus is, so he asked Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus says in Mark 9, everything is possible for him who believes. And Scripture this then says this, immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe help my unbelief. And I think I find myself even there, and you may too. We have faith, and yet sometimes we still have fear and doubt. So we too can say like this man said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus goes on to heal uh, the man's son and bring him back to wholeness. Now that's a real prayer, and I think it's something that may help us this week as we think about this. So I I had uh, Sally and others help me make a, a little card. It's in your bulletin. If it fell out of your bulletin, I know there's some extras at the tables outside both doors. But if you want to look at that now, and you can put it in your pocket or keep it this week if you would like. And it just says this. It says, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me in my doubts. Help me in my fear. Help me. Because we are like Jacob. Jacob is like us. He had fear, he planned, and he prayed. He trusted God, and yet he still had concerns. He prayed for God to save him. He prayed with boldness and with passion, and we too can do that. We can pray with boldness and passion and with some daring when we are in difficult situations. God, I believe, help my unbelief. Let us pray. God, we gathered here, we your people, we do believe, and yet help our unbelief. Help us in our doubts. Help us when we fear. Lord, we pray that you help us. We need you, we need you desperately. Help us not to flee or run away from you, but to turn to you. Help us to plan like Jacob when you call us to plan, but also to pray. Help us to pray and to plan, to plan and to pray 
to call on your name when we need your help. We thank you, O Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.